This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Amazon Web Services, the world's most comprehensive and broadly adopted cloud platform. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Daniela Brill, a reporter who covers technology and the future of work for the Washington Post. Today, we have two different perspectives on leadership and the future of work. Later, we'll hear from Chief People Officer at Cisco, Kelly Jones. But first, I'm pleased to be joined by Deb Liu, the CEO of Ancestry. Deb, welcome. It's absolutely wonderful to be here. So before we get started, I do want to disclose that Amazon founder Jeff Bezos owns the post and interim CEO Patty Stonecipher sits on the board of Amazon. Deb, let's go ahead and get started with some basics. I'm sure a lot of our uh, audience has heard of Ancestry or at least Ancestry.com, but can you briefly explain for those who may not know what exactly it is and what kind of data you work with? Yeah, we are the leading company in family storytelling in history. So, you know, over 130 million family trees have been created on our platform and over 6 billion nodes. And you think about that in the 30 more 30, almost 40 year history, we have had almost, you know, we've had people from around the world really creating family trees and telling their family stories. We're also the leader in genomics. And so if you've done a DNA test to find out your ancestry, we're right here with you at the largest genomics database in the world. That makes sense. Um, I want to jump into a topic that's really getting a lot of buzz, you know, across industries, but especially in tech. Um, and that's the development of AI and what people are doing with generative AI and these new developments uh, that are really picking up quite rapidly. How do you expect AI to change how work is done at Ancestry? Or is that already happening? Well, it's already happening in that we've been using AI for a long time in our product. One of the things that we've done for a long time is actually digitize family records. So in 1940, it took us nine months to take the census and digitize the handwriting and turn it into indexable content so that people can find it and we can hint it to our customers. This time it took us just a few weeks. And so you can see that AI has been powering and actually accelerating the work that we're doing. Beyond that, though, I actually think that AI is such a powerful tool in family storytelling. How can we actually help families find out a little bit more about the conditions under which their parents emigrated to America or their great grandparents lived in another country? We can do that with generative AI where you can really enhance that storytelling and find history at the fingertips. Tell me a little bit more about that. I, I'm curious both on the worker side and on the product side, sort of how generative AI is sort of creating these new possibilities and how workers may have to deal with it or, or even customers may be able to use it in these new ways, as you mentioned. I actually, this could be a revolutionary. I actually think it's going to be a revolution in employee productivity in that you could do so much more. You can get more research done. You can help get assistance writing content or writing code. You can even get your, your unit testing for your code to actually be written by AI. There's so many possibilities, and I actually think it's going to be a boon for this industry. But more than that, for customers, it's going to be such an interesting experience to be able to be at your fingertips, be able to transform storytelling about your family, to learn more about you know, the part of your ancestry or DNA that you knew nothing about. And that education can actually be right there rather than having to Google it or, or look it up. You can actually, you know, in an instant, it can explain to you, this is how the migration patterns of someone with your DNA came about. And you can actually 
build it right into your family history immediately. And are you guys providing any guidance on how or whether AI should be used by workers? I know there's a lot of debate on, you know, should we be relying on generative AI for certain uses and, and some concerns about what that could do um, to, to products if we, if we start using the code that it generates, for example. Um, do you have any guidance on that? One of the most important things is really helping guide how we use this technology because we want to use it in a privacy safe way. And it's going to be a really important because we're marrying data from customers with something that's public. And so it's really important that we have guardrails around how this data is actually used. And we are very careful about that. Our chief privacy officer has been involved in the setup of these, these um, principles and we adhere to them very carefully. And when it comes to work more generally, you know, there's a lot of fear around new developments in tech as, as it's always been, but specifically around generative AI, there's a lot of workers concerned, like, could this replace me? Um, is this something that, that people should be concerned about? What's your opinion on how it would be used at Ancestry and how it might affect people's jobs? I actually think our teams are very excited about the possibilities. How can it make their jobs more rich, more creative? How can they open up more time to actually focus on customer problems? And so we're very excited about it here at Ancestry, and we look forward to having it as part of our workflows. Wonderful. So I want to actually rewind. Um, we're going to go back to your beginnings at Ancestry. Um, you joined in the beginning of 2021, and that was obviously one year after the outbreak of the pandemic. What was it like to take the reins of the company at such an uncertain time? And how has your leadership developed since then? You know, it's interesting. I did the entire hiring process with our board, as well as with our owners, and I met my entire team all virtually. I, we had actually never met each other until the first time we got together. And, you know, we had we had really kind of started our team kind of from scratch. And it was very interesting to build connection over Zoom and over over, you know, VC. And so it's really important that building connection is a part of what we're doing. And so one of the things that we've continued to do is we're still a, a choice and flexibility organization. And so we still want people to have that, which they've had, but we've also learned to evolve and actually grow and build connection over that time. Got it. And you mentioned choice and flexibility. I want to touch on that a little bit more. Um, for the workers, the employees of Ancestry, how have the past few years changed uh, how they do their jobs and specifically from where? Like, how are you navigating all of that? Well, for the first three decades, almost four decades of our company, we had been a in-person five days a week in the office culture. And all of that changed one day in March in 2020. And since then, we have implemented a choice and flexibility policy, as I said, which means you can work from wherever you need to, to get your job done. And it really is about, you know, what is it that your job demands? And are you actually able to achieve that where you want to be? And we've had people move in different places. We have some people who chose in remote and others choose to work in the office and different teams actually can choose how much time they spend together. But it's all about trust. You know, if we trust our teams to do the right thing, to accomplish the things that they're setting out to do, then you know, they can work in the places that make the most sense for them. Our lives changed so much in 2020 and 2021 that we can't go back to the old ways of working. And instead, what if we forged a new path where people can deliver what they need for work, but also have the balance that they have in their life? So it sounds a little bit like a flexible hybrid model is, is what you guys are doing. Um, I'm curious about, you know, you, you talked about forging this new path ahead. 
how would you say it's going? What are you learning about what works and what doesn't? What has to change? Because I know you guys probably hadn't worked this way before, as you mentioned, five days a week in the office. Um, what's going well? What are you learning has to change? How are you adapting? Well, one thing that we chose to do is flip the model on its head rather than saying, hey, we are a five day a week in the office company. Let's, you know, let's go back to that. What if we said we need to make choice and flexibility work? What are the things that we're going to change? And so instead, we actually, you know, for example, we do moments together where we bring teams together, we ask them to come in, but then most of the time people get to choose to work what's most effective for them. And we've had to change a lot of our policies, our principles, as well as our team culture to actually make that work. We've also had to really change our expectations, you know, because measurement is not seeing people sit at their desk or accomplishing something by standing over their shoulder, it's really around metrics and are people delivering what it is that they're committing to deliver to. And so you can do that from anywhere and we really believe and commit to that. And so we're seeing also a lot of employers actually pull back from remote work and, and even flexibility in some cases, go back to more days in the office, if not a full week in the office. Um, do you think there's staying power in this flexibility hybrid model? Uh, do you think it'll change over time? And what's the expectation on the evolution of how Ancestry views it? How we view it is, you know, people have now oriented their lives, especially in ancestry, around our choice and flexibility. And so we want to honor that. You know, so many people tell us that you know, they, they couldn't do what they do the same way if they actually had to come into work five days a week. You know, for example, they've reoriented their lives where they're able to drop off their kids in the morning and make their first call. They don't have to commute or maybe they live in a further place. And so rather than saying, hey, Someday we're going to come back to the office. Let's bring everybody back together. We decided we're going to honor what people are doing today. And how do we make them the most productive, happy, and engaged employees possible with this policy? And so you do see this as sort of the, the long-term plan and I guess overall as, as something that could last for other organizations as well. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of organizations have given up their real estate. We happen to still have office locations, but, you know, we choose to continue to, to have places for people to gather. But many organizations have actually given up their office spaces or no longer even have physical presence together. And that, you know, absolutely for those companies and even for ours, we will continue to honor this. And, you know, it's going to be an iterative process. It's not going to tomorrow we wake up and we figured it all out. But instead, it's how do you drive employee engagement and productivity when not everyone is together and able to stare at each other every single day? And how do you continue creative endeavors of building products for the world when you're not able to see each other that often? I think that it's possible if we actually commit to making it work. A lot of companies, it makes more sense for their industry or maybe what they're doing. But for us, it makes the most sense to give people the time back that they want, that they don't want to commute if that's what they want. And at the same time, have the moments and places for them to gather if that's what they choose. And you mentioned, obviously, employee engagement and, and some of the challenges uh, that, that come with this new model. I'm curious, are you finding anything that you're still kind of scratching your head on, on how to solve um, problems or, or expectations, challenges that you didn't expect that have come up now that you're doing this model? I think the biggest thing is, how do you continue, you know, it's the creative endeavors. There's areas of the company where, you know, you just need to get together a certain amount. You need some brainstorming and it's just so much easier to get together and do some things. And so how do we bring people together at the right moment? Rather than saying, you need to do this X number of days a week, how do we say, hey, each team needs to decide for itself what 
engagement really means and how you get done the creative work that's necessary. That's still a work in progress for us. And I think it will continue to be, but we believe that we will get to a place where it's going to make sense for everybody. So I want to switch topics real quick. Um, you've been a strong advocate for more women at the top of corporate America, particularly in Silicon Valley, where you spent much of your career. There's been a greater recognition of gender disparities across the board. Where do you think we are today and where do we need to go next? Well, I think we're making progress, but not as much as I hope. You know, I think when I graduated from business school, you know, we all thought that the world was completely fair. And then we we actually, you know, it's 20 years later, we just did our 20th reunion. We realized that there is still a disparity even to this day. And I think that, you know, part of that is there's just a lot of, of structural issues within the workplace. You know, there is just you know, there's there's unconscious bias. You know, women are just less likely to become a manager than a man in the same circumstance. So I think it's for every hundred men promoted to management, 86 women are. Women are promoted on their performance and men on potential. You know, women have to check all the boxes in order to get a job and women, men are, you know, can, don't have to do that. And I think those are just small things that trip people up along the way. And I also think that structurally as a, as a society, you know, I am a working mother, I have three kids and you know, it's really hard when the children are young to actually work outside the home and balance all of those things when there's limited maternity leave in, in many cases or limited support from your management. And so I think that we're getting better, but there's still more we need to do as a society. Absolutely. And you actually wrote a book on this topic entitled Take Back Your Power. Can you talk to us a little bit about the obstacles facing women throughout their career? And you mentioned some of them here briefly about management um, and, and sort of how, how we're supposed to sort of push this forward so that more women can advance. Well, I think some of the biggest challenges, and I started the first chapter with knowing your playing fields, because one of the big challenges we have is very few women actually until they encounter these situations. Until I had kids, I had no idea what the challenges were as a working mother. And so, you know, systematically, we judge mothers, for example, more negatively on performance reviews, their dedication to work, we're less likely to hire them, things like that. And yet, until you face it, it really isn't on our radar. Same thing with you know, men and women are offered different amounts of money coming out of school, even if they have the same credentials. These small things add up to large things over a long career. And so part of writing this book was to document that and to say, hey, if we all acknowledge it and we ask, hey, can, you know, ask ourselves the question, ask our employers the question, how can I continue my career despite the fact that I'm doing these other things, such as having children? How do I get support? How do I get mentors and sponsors to help me pass these difficult circumstances? Those are the really important things. And I wrote this book to help people navigate that. Well, hopefully that does help. Um, obviously, you're somebody that knows sort of how this goes. You're one of the few Asian American women at the top in tech. How has your personal journey shaped how you approach leadership? I think the biggest thing is I know what it's like to feel alone, to feel like there's no one like me or or people don't see me. And I don't want that for other people. And so part of it is to build an inclusive workplace where we talk about DEI, but I think a sense of belonging is so incredibly important. And that's something which I hope we can foster. You know, as we have more diverse leaders across companies at the top and, and across every management level, then the sense of belonging, the sense that you can find a place, you can see somebody like you, you know, that's going to continue to change. And I hope that for the next generation. And this sort of kind of 
tightly related to that, tell us a little bit about how your views on mentorship and the role it plays in advancing, um, you know, future leaders and, and folks who do want to get to the top. Well, you know, I write about the four types of allies in my book, and one of the things I write about is mentors versus sponsors. Mentors are people who give you advice, and they're incredibly important. They are, you know, they're neutral observers on your career, and they give you advice to help you decide between A or B or whether you should do X or Y. But I also talk about sponsors. Sponsors are people who open doors for you. And when I say open doors for you, they're the ones who say, hey, there's this opportunity, a stretch assignment that you would never have gotten. I've had so many career ladder level ups because of people like that. Managers who said to me, I know this is premature, but here's an opportunity to manage the entire team or to take on a new assignment or to do this thing that you thought you could never do at this point in your career. And those are the, the step functions that I have had, and it's because I've had these sponsors. And so I think that the lack of mentors and sponsors, especially for those who are underrepresented or women, is, is a hard thing in a lot, of, a lot of teams. And so really thinking about that culturally in corporations and thinking, how can we give the, the same level of mentorship and sponsorship across the board so everyone can succeed equally? That's an important, important piece of information there. And I want to zoom out a little bit and look across you know, the past three years or so, we've been in this really weird time, all navigating this together. What do you think has been the biggest lesson for you as a leader over this past three years? I think the number one thing is building resilience is actually what gets people through tough times. You know, I you, you had the quote for me at the, at the start, which was, you know, I think sometimes we try to make it so that it's easy for teams to say, you know, if things are, are all green, green, and yet at the same time, actually being honest about some of the challenges we're facing, you know, enlisting people to actually help find solutions, not just saying, we're instituting a flexible work policy, go at it, and then answering every question, but instead actually co-creating with your team saying, what are the things we need to do to make this work? And so I think that that resilience, that grit, that ability to actually work through problems as a team, as a company, is going to be an important part of how companies get through tough times. And we have a real quick one minute, so I'm going to keep this one brief, but real quick, if we could leave final thoughts for future leaders, um, what would your advice be? You know, the people who are going to succeed in the long term aren't the people you see speaking up the most, aren't necessarily the people who look like the leaders. I would just encourage all leaders to look deep in your organizations, look broadly and say, what can a future leader look like? And it doesn't have to be who's leading today. What if we gave everyone a sense of belonging, a sense that they can achieve and that they belong in the story of these companies? I think we have so much more we could do together if we bring together different voices and challenge each other. And I hope that that all leaders see that and that we can bring together the best teams in the world to solve the world's hardest problems. That's a great note to end on. Deb Liu, thank you so much for joining us here at Washington Post Live. Thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. And thanks to all of you for joining us here today. Please stay with us for the next segment right after this. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hello, I'm Ruth Umo, leadership editor at Fortune. Speed and agility are critical to survival in the age of digital transformation. Joining me today is Jake Burns, AWS enterprise strategist, to discuss how companies can succeed in this metamorphic new era of rapid innovation. Welcome, Jake. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. 
Let's start by level setting. First, what do we mean when we talk about economies of speed and how does that differ from economies of scale? That's a great question. So the way I see it, the biggest difference is, you know, in our typical model of economies of scale, uh, work will begin with a business case uh, that justifies the project. And what this implies is that we know what the work is going to be and what the project needs to be uh, when it completes, which could be, you know, months or years in the future. Um, so for this to work, we have to have kind of a stable environment from a business standpoint. Um, and, you know, it, this model kind of breaks down when we have a lot of change. So with economies of scale, we're focused more on not doing what we've always been doing and doing it better, but instead kind of disrupting the current model and looking for kind of new innovative ways to do things. And so we do this by focusing on speed instead of focusing on scale. And with the focus of experimenting as much as possible to find that innovation, that new way of doing things uh, that's going to kind of disrupt the market and allow us to thrive in times of change. What key differences have you observed in organizations that leverage economies of scale versus those that embrace economies of speed? Yeah, so, um, you know, typically uh, traditional organizations that are focused on economies of scale are going to generally be resistant to change. And that's because their operating model is uh, focused on being very efficient at doing the same thing over and over again. So they end up being somewhat risk averse, and they should be because if they were to experiment in that operating model, uh, the cost of failure is so high that they just cannot afford to take those risks. Um, and so they tend to punish failures and it causes them to be overly cautious and to overplan. And that's why we see typically with most projects, you know, there's uh, several weeks or months or sometimes even years of planning that goes into it because the cost of getting it wrong is so high uh, that we need to be cautious. And, um, and so they tend to do that and they tend to focus on efficiency. And that works very well, like I said, when things are kind of steady state. Um, but with economies of speed, we're not looking for the perfect idea. We have this realization that we're never gonna find that perfect idea through planning and through preparation. So instead we focus our efforts on minimizing the cost of experimentation, which basically means minimizing the cost of failure because most experiments fail. Uh, if they don't, then they're not real experiments. And by investing in agility and lowering that cost of failure, uh, we don't have to predict the future anymore. And we're able to kind of move uh, forward and be prepared for whatever comes. And we don't have to get it right the first time. We could be, still be successful um, after a series of failures, which is the norm uh, in modern organizations that are operating this way. Absolutely. What levers then can leaders pull to ensure successful transformation? Yeah, so I think the, one of the biggest ones is um, moving from creating friction to reducing friction. And so, you know, when we move to from bigger projects to smaller projects, what we're doing is we're allowing things to happen more quickly. We're allowing mistakes to be made without them being catastrophic. And so we're allowing uh, innovation and through experimentation. And so we could do this through automation, uh, through aligning incentives across the cycle, um, through making uh, iterations smaller and projects smaller. Um, and, and what this does is it does an, has a number of benefits. Uh, you know, one great benefit of that is it attracts top talent because top talent wants to work for an organization that moves quickly and that allows them to be creative and to create new things and invent uh, new things rather than kind of getting very efficient at doing the same thing over and over again. So reducing friction is a huge part of that. And, um, you know, as a, as a kind of um, another point uh, in, that, in that regard is getting rid of these guardrails, right? The guardrails are there for a purpose and we don't want to get rid of them 
uh, completely, but what we want to get rid of is our um, our dependency on them. And we need to think of them more as kind of an emergency uh, way to stop things rather than bumping into it over and over again in the course of normal operations. And so what we replace the guardrails with is with mechanisms. And at Amazon, we um, we're famous for you know uh, our love of mechanisms. Uh, when we find a, a, a problem or an opportunity that needs to be solved over and over again, uh, we'll create a mechanism uh, to 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 solve that rather than kind of uh, being firsthand kind of working on that over and over again. Um, and so through these mechanisms, we don't have to bump into those guardrails quite as much, and then we don't have to stop quite as much. Perfect segue into the cloud. How does it enable continuous improvement? What role does it play here? Yeah, so the cloud is, in my opinion, one of the best ways to get to this economies of speed because it so closely aligns with that model of working. Um, just the pay for consumption model of cloud, for example, uh, allows you to try things uh, very quickly and very inexpensively, which, and this is just a capability that we never had before uh, in traditional IT data centers where we had to uh, plan and invest and you know put in a lot of time and effort before we could try things. So just that ability to pay for consumption, to just turn things off and stop paying for them or to try a new service at any time without uh, switching costs or significant switching costs and without having to you know, develop a whole new service, um, just being able to use best of breed services on demand uh, at very low cost and without uh, upfront commitments. It's just such a huge driver of innovation and continuous improvement. And once you have that, then it's been my experience that uh, your culture tends to kind of shift around those new capabilities. So a lot of us like to think, you know, we have to change our ways of working uh, and to use the cloud. I'd say that's right to a certain degree, but just by using the cloud itself tends to uh, get organizations to think more in the economies of speed because of the capabilities that they have. Now, the key there is to realize that you have those capabilities, because if you keep operating in the old way um, in the cloud, then you're not going to see the benefit of it. So it really takes uh, deliberate effort to understand what these new capabilities are, not just all the great services and features that you're going to have, but the ability to just try things, see if it works, and then very quickly change course if you want to. Um, when the entire business realizes that they have that capability that's powered by cloud, that's where the real innovation tends to happen. Um, well, to your point, thriving in this digital age, this disruptive age, uh, will certainly require that companies unlock new ways to streamline their operations uh, and, and to create value. Thank you so much for your time, Jake. And now back to the Washington Post. And now back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back. For those of you just joining us, I'm Daniela Burrell, a reporter covering technology and the future of work for the Washington Post. I'm now pleased to be joined by Kelly Jones. She's the Chief People Officer at Cisco. Kelly, welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, happy to have you here. Um, I actually wanna start off by looking ahead into the future. Obviously, anytime we talk about the future of work, we have to now talk about the hot topic of AI. Um, and it's really a technology that's creating both excitement and anxiety with everything that we're seeing it be able to do so easily now. How is Cisco thinking about using uh, AI in its day-to-day -day operations? Yeah, it's interesting. Deb used the word revolution, I think it was, and, and I think she's spot on when we think about the impact that this is going to have to the work for all of us that work in the talent space. Uh, and the other side of that is the opportunity. I think for, for those of us that do this work, it's probably one of the most exciting times to do the jobs that we do. 
Um, at Cisco, when we think about the future of AI, we're really trying to stay aligned in navigating this with our purpose. You know, and, and that comes into things in my space, like how do we intersect diversity, equity, and inclusion with some of these tools? I really believe these tools have a great potential to impact our processes kind of front to end. And we actually already have some of these running. We have a, an element of this in our system already that helps us with detecting and deterring bias that may show up in different parts of our process. But I think it's also tip of the iceberg when you think about the potential of having these systems that can kind of run within your closed environment, the efficiency that it can create. To some extent, it democratizes support. If you think about what your day looks like uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, just your ability to access information, I think it's gonna have a significant impact obviously on how work is done and also on tasks. I think the critical thing for us is going to be ensure that we're doing it in a very inclusive way. I think um, the opportunity we have for some of the roles to really be able to kind of work up the stack once we've learned how to work with a lot of this technology is uh, is huge for us. Can you give any examples? I'm, I'm really curious, you know, you talked about efficiency, you talked about inclusion. Yeah. Um, obviously, you said in, in one way it's already doing some of that, but I'm curious about how how Cisco views like the future uses. Yeah, well, for us, it comes across our products as well as how we look at how we support our people in, in the environment. If you take something as simple and, and basic as like HR support, you know, the volume of cases and the volume of interactions we may have with employees around information they're trying to access, where right now it may be done through a person, a uh, repetitive system, our ability to kind of put all of that online really frees up capacity from our teams to do other things. But the other thing it really is going to allow us to do, and someone touched on this earlier, I think it might have been Deb talking about uh, uh, equity in the workplace. When we think about bias and we think about how bias comes into some of our underrepresented populations, we also know that our underrepresented populations tend to be the ones that choose to work hybrid or remote on a, on a more frequent basis. So then when you think about the possibility of something like AI, and how do you run something like that within your performance system to ensure that you're not seeing proximity bias? Because we also know that the same way that unconscious bias works, we tend to have proximity bias as humans. Those we see, we tend to value their contributions a bit higher. So how do we make sure that inadvertently those that are choosing a more flexible or remote path are not actually seeing a negative repercussion in their performance and subsequently any of their compensation by using some of these algorithms. And we've already done some of this, but I think we have an opportunity to get deeper. And then the second thing I would see is when we think about how we attract talent, historical sourcing, and I, now I have a background in the hiring space. Um, I started my career in HR in that space. And so when you think back, the time it takes to actually go out and do all of the manual intervention for the sourcing and the screening process, it takes a long time and it reduces the amount of time that your hiring team can actually spend with leaders determining where do they wanna take this role? Where do they wanna take the future of their organization? It, it can make the job a little more tactical. So I think there's a huge opportunity for us when we think about sourcing, when we think about screening. Now, the important part of this is you've gotta watch that technology to make sure there's no embedded bias into the algorithms. But I think that there's more reason than not to be really optimistic about this development and the opportunity it gives our teams in many of those spaces across the talent management strategy to kind of work up the stack a bit. And how is Cisco and how should other employers um, approach this changing landscape when it comes to workers' skills and knowledge in this space? Are you guys doing anything um, for workers when it comes to use of these tools? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, first of all, we're leading with 
the word responsible. You know, for those of you that are know Cisco, we tend to have a high trust factor with all of our customers and with the market. So for us, we're trying to be very responsible how, about how we implement these processes. And the approach that we're taking with our employees, I'm hearing in some areas that people are hesitant to talk about the changing nature of tasks and the changing nature of work, because there's a little bit of fear that goes along with this, this fear of, is this a thing that's actually going to make me irrelevant? I actually am in the opposite camp. I don't believe that AI is coming for all of our jobs. I believe it's going to help us do our jobs better. So what we're trying to do at Cisco is position, what is the value proposition for the individual to learn how to work with these technologies, to do their job better, but to also have higher levels of well-being? Because when you think about the type of tasks this can automate, oftentimes they are the uh, repetitive tasks that tend to get in everyone's way, the frustrating systems that we interact with that tend to slow us down. So what we're really trying to do is approach it as an opportunity to learn to work with this technology and to learn to how, how to responsibly bring this technology into your day-to-day -day job. Understood. Um, I want to talk a little bit about how Cisco's operating in this new environment that we've seen over the past uh, three years. Obviously, it's reshaped the leadership playbook. Um, as a large company with tens of thousands of employees globally, what has changed over that time period and how Cisco leads its employees? Yeah, I actually think that nothing has changed more than leadership over the last few years. When you look at the impact um, the world has changed. We heard two people talk about that uh, earlier in the session today, just the changes to work and to the workplace. I think some of the things that we're leaning into is, number one, the things we used to think about as soft skills, and I will be honest, I really dislike that word. They're actually hard skills. When we look at how leaders need to show up, they need to show up with a different level of compassion and with connection and with communication with their employees which is something that we've always needed, but I would say it's never as prevalent as it is when you're working in a fully flexible and hybrid world. Because one of the things that we've learned, certainly we can do our jobs fully flexible at Cisco. I know there's been a lot of uh, conversations about, should we be in office, should we not be in office? And each company is navigating this aligned to the goals that they're trying to drive. We believe the future is flexible and hybrid. And when we think about how this affects leadership, it does require our people leaders to be at a next level of connection with their teams. So we've been doing things like rolling out very short but frequent connections, weekly check-ins with each of our team members, because we know through our data that one of the most important things about engagement is allowing people to see themselves in the work. So for us, we stay focused on ensuring that our people are able to see themselves in the work. We've also done something different over the last few months. About eight years ago, we completely abolished our performance management system. We made a decision that it wasn't, uh, it wasn't serving our employees, it wasn't serving our business, and it wasn't driving the outcomes that we wanted. So we took a little bit of a bold move, and without, uh, without a plan, we left from the system we were having. And over the last couple of years, what we've heard from our listening with our employees is they want to understand expectations, and they want a little more clarity around what great performance looks like, particularly in a fully hybrid world. So we've also had to kind of revisit how we're looking at some of these systems and how we are identifying development opportunities for our employees who might not be getting them in the physical space in the office. And so, you know, obviously you're not alone in your adoption of the hybrid model and continuing on with that. We have seen a lot of employers kind of uh, unsure of, of what the future is. Some have started pulling back from, from flexibility and hybrid models. How does Cisco weigh the benefits and the cost of hybrid work? Yeah, when we think about hybrid work, we actually look at it through the lens of what is the intersection between people, spaces, and policy, and how those things come together? 
And I mentioned earlier, we are, we're a fully hybrid company. We don't have a corporate mandate on days in office. That being said, I do think it's important to recognize that jobs are different. And one of the things that we continue to evolve, and I believe that in this strategy, we're all going to have to just evolve and learn. We're going to have to try things and learn and calibrate as we learn them. One of the things that we're learning is there are certain jobs that do need more proximity to each other. There are certain teams that need proximity at different times within their, their life cycle. For example, I'll talk about my team from a people and community standpoint. That's our HR team. We know that when we're launching big transformational work, the team, the cross-functional team that's aligned to that work needs to be together at the beginning to do kind of the storming, the forming, the strategy alignment. And if we invest in that time together on the front end, the work is able to move a lot more quickly. It's also able to move with more clarity and, and a lot more innovation. So for us, what we're trying to focus on is understanding kind of the intersection between location and uh, uh, performance or impact. That's the question that is still coming up. It's a question we're hearing from a lot of our clients. How are you ensuring that you're still meeting the innovative and the productivity schedules that you have when people aren't physically in the office? But what we know from our data is that we actually hear from our employees that when they work flexibly, it actually promotes higher level of innovation for at least perceptions, higher level of innovation. And so for us, we're, we're kind of fully leaning into that, that and the alignment with engagement. You know, we're also one of the thing I'll add is when we think about things differently, I think when we went into the pandemic, half of our company was already not coming into the office uh, at all. So we had a large percentage of remote workers. So we were a little bit ahead in this. But one of the things that we have learned over the last three years is in adoption of these collaboration technologies, success when it comes to well-being and delivering outcomes really has to do with how do you set up an intentional hybrid strategy? And part of that is boundaries. You know, can you have boundaries in terms of how you are collaborating? Some of that is the volume of your meetings. Some of that is your video usage. And so us being able to push those insights to our teams so they can manage their well-being and their schedules has been a nice, uh, a nice add and uplift for us over the last couple of years. Absolutely. I want to talk about another model that's gaining a lot of interest in the U.S. and we're actually seeing um, some adoption and adoption actually across the world, but in the U.S. still not quite there. Um, what are your thoughts about the viability of the, the four-day work week? Um, how does Cisco view that and do you think that could ever become the norm here in the U.S.? You know, it's really interesting. We ran a pilot on the four-day work week at Cisco. Uh, we did that pilot with our 3P organization. And we, for 12 weeks, uh, we ran two different models. We did a, uh, people opted into the pilot have off every uh, one day a week. And then the second six weeks, we did one day every other week. And when we set it up, what we said was, we weren't going to mandate hours. We weren't going to say, do 40 hours in 40 days, we in, or four days. We intentionally said, deliver your outcomes. You know, deliver your outcomes within this schedule. And we learned a lot in that particular pilot. Um, the people that participated in the pilot very much liked the pilot. You know, there was a lot of enthusiasm around, around the four days. The well-being uplift for the every other Friday was actually, or Monday, depending on what country you were in, was actually a little bit higher because we also learned there were some negative things. We had some people who um, had a difficult time, you know, navigating within those days because someone mentioned this earlier about, you know, our work schedules, our family schedules, those that had children and wanted to in the evenings, you know, you stop working, you have dinner with your family, you have your family time. When you're evening out that work five days a week, it's a little bit easier. When you're trying to push it into a four-day schedule, it's a little bit tougher. Um, we also learned that in order to do it, 
you have to be very thoughtful about who is participating. Because if you don't have everyone participating, it can be challenging for those that aren't participating, if that makes sense. It can also be challenging uh, when you're trying to meet some customer outcomes. So we learned a few things. We have a few things yet to learn around what do uh, what does it what is the impact to your customers when you have days that you're 32 hours and you're mostly not in the office. I think for us, we ultimately decided at Cisco that we weren't going to do the four-day work week, but it was because we have so many flexible work practices. And what we heard from our teams were that was one of them. You know, that's kind of one of the the uh, tools in the toolbox around how you have flexibility. But we felt like we were getting to the outcomes in other ways. I do think that the four-day work week is just a little bit um, of a symptom of the fact that we have all kind of renegotiated our relationship with work and life. Where we used to try to fit our life around our work, what we're seeing more is people are trying to fit their work around their life. And so the companies that are going to succeed in uh, attracting the best talent are going to be those that have strong flexibility, not just around where, but I think around the when and around the how people work. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, we're seeing so many different models and people just try to figure this out. Um, I, I get what you're saying. If you're already offering a lot of flexibility, you know, is a four day work week necessary? Um, I guess I guess we'll see how that pans out. Uh, I want to move to something that you were already talking about in this last segment, a little bit about employee engagement and expectations. Uh, how have the past few years impacted what Cisco employees expect from their employer, so from you all? And, and what are you hearing from them and how has that changed over time? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the big things I would say that certainly come up is their expectation around the role that an employer plays in balancing uh, their work and life, and specifically when it comes to well-being. You know, a lot of us kind of did a big revisit on not just what our kind of standard benefits plan was, but how we approached well-being from an individual level over the last few years. And so we've had to really relook at that, and we've done everything from, you know, increasing our amount of critical time off, we doubled the amount of volunteering time for our employees, we, we give 10 days a year to every Cisco employee that we we call time to give. And it's basically wherever you want to spend it, whatever, whatever cause is near and dear to your heart, we will pay you to go off and volunteer with our cause. But there's another part to it that has more to do with like the mental health part of it. So we've added a mental health practitioner to our staff. They attend all of our company meetings. Um, we've really kind of doubled down on the resources that we make available for our employees, including grandparent time off, critical time off. So we've really leaned into the well-being side of it. I think the expectations are changing dramatically when it comes to that. But the other thing I'll say is the, the coaching, training, and development side, you know, we've always had a strong focus on developing our people. But one of the things that I'm really starting to see is when we aren't all physically together and you don't have as much proximity around leadership and coaching, there's a question around how do I get ongoing development? And so we've had to kind of do a revisit on how we think about skills development for our employees, how we think about kind of learning that learning in the flow of work conundrum that we're all dealing with, and how this really changes what we expect from our leadership, from becoming a leader of a team to a leader of a Cisco ecosystem. So it's been through well-being, it's been through development, um, I also think that the flexibility conversation is an interesting one because I think there is a, there's a portion, um, we talk with clients a lot, there's a portion that we're kind of just hoping that the previous times will come back and we can stop talking about flexibility. And I think that flexibility is here to stay. I, if anything, I feel strongly the toothpaste is outside of the tube on that one. And the companies that are going to succeed are going to learn how to do this rather than how to fight this. 
And I want to talk a little bit about the economic conditions that all companies are dealing with right now. Obviously, it's a really tough market right now. Tech companies we're seeing do major layoffs across the board. And, and Cisco has not been immune from the strains of this economy and this environment and what it's had to do as a result. Um, but you know how that's done obviously needs to be taken into account. And there, there it seems like there are some companies that are doing a little bit better and how they're doing layoffs and, and how they're making sure that employees don't feel unvalued uh, if that has to be done or that there's not some kind of, um, you know, sort of disengagement that happens afterwards for the people who stay. Um, I'm curious, what is the right way to handle layoffs or situations like this um, when they do come up, as we're probably going to see a little bit more in, in the next few weeks? Yeah, you know, it's it's been interesting over the last year or so watching how different organizations are navigating this. And, and those on the call that work in the talent and the people space know that it's probably um, the least favorite thing that anyone does. No one comes into this work to, to facilitate that or for that to be part of their role. But I think when you're at the point where you have to, the how is really everything. And it starts with transparency. You know, how you talk to your employees about what's actually happening. I think sometimes as organizations, our desire to uh, protect people limits us from being as transparent as we should be about the why. So I think um, starting with being very transparent with your employees about the why, I think there's an element of how do you help them navigate that change? Because when businesses make decisions like that, it, it's never personal, but it's always personal to the person. And so how you help them navigate that piece. And one of the things um, that we've done historically at Cisco is to uh, lean deeply into two things. Number one is, our internal mobility and placement system. And when we experienced this in the fall, about a quarter of the people that were impacted, we actually found jobs for. And so we had a, we took our entire hiring organization and refocused it on that because oftentimes they're great skills. They're just in areas of the business that aren't growing as much as others. And so I think transparency, I think not underestimating the fact that skills are a little bit fungible. So that number I just gave you, part of the reason we were able to do that is if you look at skills through the lens of, you know, pe people are not one dimensional. We all evolve what it is that we know and can do other things. And if we understand what the adjacent skills are, it's easier to locate other roles. And then the th last thing I would say is, I think it's really important to understand what role your ecosystem of partners can play in helping you do this. And we had a really strong partner uh, that actually helped us with resume writing, career coaching, interview skills training, you know, connection with other jobs, and, and ended up with a pretty high external placement rate. I think it was right around 91% of those that opted in actually were able to locate an external job within four weeks. And so it's, it's not pretending like these things don't happen, but I think really leaning into being transparent with your employees having a process that really supports them throughout this and understanding that there is an impact that goes beyond um, just the, the business impact that we may feel on the, on the HR side of it. Well, I think that's some valuable insights to take away from this. Um, Kelly, thank you so much uh, for being here. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.